All right, and we're live. This is Chad with I Want to Know. Uh, my co-host Mark wasn't able to make it up today. We did a two and a half hour drive. Well, I did it in about two hours up to uh, Cam Praxis's facility uh, just outside of Rocky Mountain House. And I'm here with uh, registered psychologist Jim Marland. How's it going, Jim? Oh, good. Thank you. Awesome. Awesome. So I had the benefit of coming up and doing a weekend with uh, you guys. Um, going through the program with uh, some first responders and some veterans from the Canadian military. So maybe do uh, give us a little bit description about your background, and then uh, we'll talk about Camp Praxis. My accent belies me, I think. I came over from England when I was 25. Nice. I was raised on a farm, and um, rites of passage of my childhood, I think, were things like calluses on your hand and working for a few hours before breakfast and getting muddy and all that sort of stuff so it was sort of old-fashioned farm life nice and uh, but I was I was always looking over the horizon my twin brother wanted to stay in the farm and that was his plan I wanted to sort of explore yeah and so I before I came to Canada I was working uh at adventure training centers, teaching people leadership skills through using the mountains and the lakes as classrooms. Very cool. And sometimes we'd have a few months off to do something else, so I would travel, love to travel, and hitchhike across the Sahara and through the <laughs> Congo jungle. and must be some amazing stories from that. And climbed in various places like Himalayas and New Zealand and Australia and Norway. And um, for our 21st, birthday gift to each other my twin brother and I decided that we'd give each other a year of our lives nice. so we set off on bicycles to try and get from the UK to uh, New Zealand anyway we rode our bikes to Afghanistan and they were stolen and then so we went by actually I Pe was pedal bikes you rode pedal yeah, bikes. yeah, yeah wow. to Afghanistan I, I have to say I was sort of secretly relieved because I was kind of fed <laughs> up with bicycling. <laughs> I can only I, imagine. I had to pretend to be so sad. <laughs> so we hitchhiked and did public transport through Afghanistan, Pakistan, and India and Nepal, and then flew down to Australia where we worked and various sh big sheep stations and whatnot in yeah. New Zealand and, and then came home. So I think I'd traveled to about 40 different countries and experienced cultures that tourists don't experience we were on bicycles and hitchhiking and sleeping on open ground and whatnot so we did experience something that was more local than what you get from going to an all-inclusive resort anyway so amazing experience yes yeah you um i think i think it helped me realize the importance of what they call soft skills like saying please and thank you and <laughs> smiling. And I remember going through Africa, and I don't remember a single situation where I was suffering from racial discrimination. It just didn't happen. Yeah. And um, anyway, I think it, it reinforced what my mother and father would say, good manners. Just treat other people with sincere respect, and you might squeak through. Wow. Should we were on the... On the day of our departure my mum and dad took us down to the ferry from England to France and I think my mum turned to my dad they told me years later do you know what she said you'll never see those boys again oh my goodness and, and she still let you go yeah the I listened to a podcast recently where uh, a filmmaker had 
gone over the world. I think it was the guy that did all the filming for Anthony Bourdain, and so they go all over the world and do those things. And and he said the same thing. He's like, I've been everywhere and never had a bad experience. But Mm. he goes in with the mentality like this is their place and their culture, and you know we're gonna be uh, polite and use please and thank you. And he's you know whatever it was. I think it was 15 years, no issues. Really? Yeah. The the worst thing I think I can remember it was in southwestern Turkey. The, the the farmers and the shepherds have dogs, Anatolian shepherd dogs, I think they're called, and uh, they chop their ears off to make them more fierce. And these dogs chased us on our bikes, so wow. we we cut pretty stout sticks of, <laughs> of, of sort of young trees, yeah, and we'd hit them on the head as hard as we could as we were pedaling away. So trying to pedal and pedal and hit at the same time, <laughs> and I'd sort of I hadn't actually forgotten about that. But the other day, we had someone come and to treat our horses, and guess what sort of cotton-picking dog no she had. No way. And my, the hairs on the back of my neck just yeah. went straight up. I yeah. said, lock that dog up. Because <laughs> I, would, I would be violent against it. With the, I'm not a violent person, but I did not like that dog, and yeah. he didn't like me. It was very interesting. It's the first sort of flashback I think I've ever had, apart from a few stories in jail. It's funny, the... Uh, um I got bitten by a chow when I was about 14 years old. Two of them sort of attacked me, bit my elbows and knees mm-hmm. and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And the, the the owner finally came out and called them off. And to this day, I see a chow. And I want zero yes. to do with that dog. Just yeah. create as much separation as you can. Yeah. What happens in our past affects our future, does it not? Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you uh, you did lots of traveling, and mm. then uh, you did your schooling, I'm guessing, after your traveling? Yes, I didn't actually graduate from high school. I was dyslexic and ambitious for other things, I think. and yeah. So they let me go out of high school before I had properly done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, the... Uh, uh, and you still got into college and university without your high school degree? Did you have to do some making up to get in there? Yes, I, th- yes, I did. I think I had to do some upgrading because this was now obviously in Canada. So I had to go to school and upgrade and then get into college and do the first two years of a social work degree at college and then went off to the University of British Columbia to finish it off. Nice. Yeah, yeah I'm, uh, I'm in the same boat as you. I never graduated high school. I went into construction, so no one ever came to me and said, hey, I don't think you're smart enough to do construction. <laughs> <laughs> they always just let me do it anyways. Yes. So uh, 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 you said sociology degree? Social work. Social work degree. Yep. And then you went into... Then I, then I was a child and youth worker and working with First Nations people and all kinds of people in distress and and quite by what seemed to be chance at the time, someone said, oh, why don't you go off to Trinity Western University and do a master's degree in psychology or counseling psych? And social work at that time had moved in my mind from being people work to become more paperwork. And it was less attractive and less meaningful and less appealing. So I jumped at the idea of, oh, I could do something that's sort of more hit the bullseye sort of thing. So I I spent a couple of years getting that degree, and that led into prison work. Wow. um, So it was two years to get the the master's, you said? Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, what prison did you go into? Well, I'd I'd started years before as an officer in Kent Maximum Security Prison. And... uh, Is that Kent, Washington? Kent is about 60 miles east of Vancouver, British Columbia. Wow. 
near like Chilliwack. In Surrey, and uh, yeah. I didn't even know there was a prison out there. Well Chilliwack, BC. Yeah, it's, it's the nearest small town is Agassiz. Yeah. That, that prison that has, was built to kind of match the new thinking behind penitentiaries and how they should be built and how the inmates okay. should be treated. And so people were moved eventually from the old BC pen, which is more like a sort of stone castle from the Victorian age. That was in Burnaby yeah. or New West? New West, yeah. It, yeah. And so they came out to this heavily fortified red brick building, <laughs> especially hardened concrete. And they thought that if they destroyed that building, then the Correctional Service of Canada would have to return to their old home, yeah. which in every respect really was much worse than the new place, but it was an excuse to be violent against the system. Wow. And so my having come from England as a sort of mountaineering instructor and leadership and communication and rather genteel compared to the life inside the walls, <laughs> it was a bit of a shock. And so I spent three and a half years there as a young officer on the front line as something called a living unit officer. That beast is now completely... Uh, extinct. They've gone back to all uniform stuff. But in those days, we were in plain clothes, and we were supposed to sort of make relationships as best we could with these guys who hated us. And um, that's a challenge. Uh, yeah, it's a bit like sort of. Obviously, it's not undercover work, but it's like not uniform. Right. So you were supposed to use sort of soft communication skills to take the temperature of the institution and get to know people a little bit. All of that had been done by old guards for years and years, but it was a new way and that's what I was involved in. So what was the goal of that? Was it trying to, like through mentorship, trying to bring down the, the, the violence level? or it, it was probably, I mean, we were always watched carefully by armed guards. Okay. No question about that. And But I think it was... The idea was let's bring down the obvious potential for conflict between an angry inmate and a uniformed guard. We'll have these guys in plain clothes, and maybe that'll sort of temper it down a wee bit. Try to be a mediator between the, yeah. the, the criminal and the law kind of thing. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Hmm. Did it work? Well, I don't think so. <laughs> 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 we were involved in all sorts of stuff in those days, Prisons were managed a bit more sort of shooting from the hip, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's a lot more science behind what they do now, and yes, they I understand. The, the um, so much of our lives sort of swing on a pendulum, yeah. and so if you go back 300 years, prisons were awful. Yeah. And now you can go to a minimum security prison and be really, really rather comfortable, except obviously that. Uh, you don't have your freedom, yeah. and you don't have necessarily freedom of movement, and you can't choose really who you, who's around you. Yeah. So you can be surrounded by people who are difficult. Yeah. Th that's an interesting, because I listened to, or I watched this documentary, I think it was done by Michael Morris, uh U.S. Takes Over the World. And they were kind of looking at what each country does better than the U.S. does, and they mm. were going to go over there and steal it and bring it back. It was kind of the, the plot of the show. And I think it was in Switzerland where they were taking um, uh, people in prison, and they were really working on reform instead of punishment. And so when they... 
they work on reform. They actually they 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 did reform the people. They gave them skills and and uh, like uh, say cooking or woodwork or metalwork, and then they taught them social skills like how do you deal with a group and how do you deal with an angry boss and you know how do you deal when you don't like yourself so much that day and that kind of stuff. And what they found was like there was no violence in the prisons at all, mm-hmm. like almost none. I mean you'll you'll have the one percent still of the people that are truly psychotic and and that's all they're living for is that violence but uh the they just found it much better and then the chance of a a criminal uh doing the crime again or any crime again dropped off massively and and i think what i see in north america is we're more about punishment and less about um you know teaching them a better way of living a life yes i suppose uh an effective criminal justice system includes protecting the public yeah. you cannot go out on the street we find you too dangerous we're going to lock you up yeah and that's balanced or like two wings on a bird with an attempt to offer rehabilitation if you like some sort of training some sort of treatment something to give you a leg up so that you can manage on the outside when you get out and so i've worked in 10 prisons mm-hmm. and um I always feel rather at home there, actually, for some reason. It's, um, it's, I, I just, I, uh, it's, it's part of my whatever it is that makes you sort of peaceful. Yeah. I would be happy to be back there. It's, the obviously, it's there are hu- government organizations that run prisons are huge organizations and they're bureaucratic and, yeah. Th- but, but the ro- working as a psychologist in all of those prisons, I was struck by the, uh, one fact is that I had no line authority whatsoever. How do you mean line authority? Well, I couldn't tell anybody what to do. Oh. <laughs> and because uh, I had no line authority. Yeah. On the, on the other hand, if you recommend that somebody for his own safety gets moved or locked up in a special way, they act on what you say. Okay. So it was, um, it's a delicate dance, really, between being, being um, helping people to helping the inmates to understand, or offenders as they're now called, to understand themselves and understand what other people are saying and entering into a, some kind of therapeutic, hopefully helpful conversation Yeah. on the one hand and always having uh, awareness that oftentimes things can become dangerous and you need to be um, uh, honest and practical about that. You don't need to be naive. People get hurt in... Yeah. They, they can be manipulative and try to guide conversations. So I'm always curious about the, the psychology of human beings and why we get large groups doing certain things, like social justice warriors, why, you know, they all kind of think the same way and do that. You're obviously in prisons where you've got a bunch of people that just decided to break the rules. Very consciously, mm. maybe not all of them, but a lot of them go, oh, I'm just going to go do this. So... I wonder what drives a person to the point where they're just ready to give up on their freedoms, their futures. I don't even know how to describe it, mm-hmm. that they'll end up in prison. So there's got to be some commonality between the people inside there. Yes. I think uh, some people don't, what, don't plan on, on sort of ending up in prison. Oh, my goodness. What, yeah. what did I do to get here sort of thing? <laughs> and and um, But... I think many of them would sort of look back and, and see one small mistake followed by another. And one thing leads to another. The rule of cause and effect is always in play. And um, 
the small decisions that we all make contribute to our life's directions. And if you join the criminal subculture and you engage in it, watch out because one of these days life will catch up with you and you end up spending time in jail that isn't much fun. Yeah. I know in the U.S. there were some studies showing that a lot of the prisoners were, you know, uh, fatherless, say. Like, mm. that's very common mm. along, among uh, prisoners that they, you know, obviously not good family upbringing, no mentors, nothing like that. Was there anything that you saw in the Canadian system that was similar? Or have they done any studies that, that show that? Oh, probably. The I think the fatherlessness is at a, cri- a critical level. Yeah. You know, most... M- if half the marriages, and a lot of time people don't get married nowadays, but if half the marriages are dissolved in one way or another, and most of the kids go with mum because stereotypically dad isn't around anymore, then you have a whole generation or two of young men growing up with whatever benefit a dad would normally provide. Right. And so that that's a problem. Yeah. There's and, and my heart goes out to people who find themselves in a relationship that is so painful and so difficult the only way to possibly survive is to move out and go away and I, I met with many 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 people who have experienced that kind of thing and uh, some people say well of course the kids would be way better off without the conflict in the home and that's part of the story too there's, there's no simple cut and dry little neat answer for this that if there's less conflict around the children that's a good thing yeah but it comes at a pretty high price. Where's dad? How yeah. can I be a dad? I've never had a dad, they say, and so it's, yeah, it's um, one, it's it's it sets up a series of things that are hard to um, counteract. Yeah, you're you're almost breeding um, bad culture going forward, right? So if you never grow up with a dad, you just think that that's that's normal. It's okay. Yes. They don't need a dad. I can yes. I can go out and meet the new girl and do the new thing. And not that I want to blame it all on men, but because it goes both ways, but I think you're right that a lot more men are are um, not there than women are not there. Part of this is this difficult tension between uh, things on a sort of micro, small scale micro analysis, where where you look at one family and and then it, you expand it to a macro sort of analysis, and you see the the sort of tragedy of one family say if you expand it by several million then you've got a cultural shift yeah and and um you know i give us a generation or two and i think the children of today will long for stable relationships where they can trust their spouses and raise children and make families happen yeah i hope that's i hope that's the way it's going for sure we want to see um, families stay together. We want to see, you know, the, the kids get the influence of the male and the female. Mm. I've got this kind of uh, funny story. We, me and my wife have a friend that um, she got pregnant by a guy and it didn't work out and she didn't want the kid around the guy. So she raised this little girl on her own and she would come over, you know, a couple times a year and we'd visit and catch up. And this little girl was probably about two or two and a half years at that time. And 
a little bit younger than my kids, but very close. And she had never experienced rough play. And so when they came in, the the girl handed me her daughter. And I'm like, ooh, kind of tossed her up in the air a little bit and caught her again. And she froze like those screaming goats. Mm. Like she just (laughs) went stiff and like total panic. She had never like felt the hands of a man, Mm. you know, that rough play that what guys do. And I just thought, how sad is that to grow up your whole life and know not that side of life and not that what men have to offer is the end all be all, but there's, there's a reason why that nature does what it does. And, Mm. you know, uh, men and women get together to make children and we, we both feed into them for different reasons. Sure. I, I talked to, um, my son, uh, in particular, that my job as a dad is to teach you how to be a good man. And so my job is to, you know, show him honor and courage and, you know, teach him abilities and stuff like that. And then my job as a dad for my daughter is different. I'm not there to teach her other than to show her what a good man is and mm. just treat my wife well and treat her well and, and that kind of thing. And of course, I, I still discipline my daughter if she steps out of line, but that's I don't feel it's necessarily my job that, mm. you know, it's my wife's job to teach her how to be a good woman. I don't know how to be a good woman. I'm mm. not I'm not a woman. And not enough people take the job as a dad or a mom that seriously, I don't think. And then we end up with broken people looking for a solution. Mm-hmm. And it comes in gangs or, you know. Yes, if you don't have close relationships, then you're probably going to go and look for them. Right. And if you can't find them in a pro-social setting sometimes you go to an anti-social setting and yeah um i don't know if you know who russell brandt is he's a comedian out of the i think out of britain uh he's pretty world famous been in lots of movies and stuff but he was uh very much a going out womanizing partying lots of drugs and all that kind of stuff and he sort of had a breakdown and decided that this isn't the right way to live life and he went back to university studying psychology and theology at the same time and he does a podcast he's trying to figure it out and one of the things that really stuck with me hard was he says everybody is following a program whether it's a 12-step program a religious program something or you're just following what the world is doing with no real direction. Mm. And I feel like a lot of the people that are struggling in this world being prisoners or people that just, you know, having trouble getting through is they're just kind of wherever the waves are taking them kind of program as opposed to getting on board with something and following uh, that, that whatever that program is, a 12-step or a religious or, mm. yeah. Imagine if for, for a moment that you and your wife are down at the coast and you're walking along the seawall, and you're watching the ships, and one big ship seems to be behaving oddly. And so you get your binoculars, and you look through the windows of the bridge, and you can see the steering wheel, Yeah. but you notice very clearly that there's no one steering her. Right. She's drifting. Yeah. And your heart starts to beat, and your blood pressure goes up, and there's a ship here that's got no one at the wheel where is it going to go and so she's drifting and so it's a bit like a human being without a goal yeah so where do you get your goals from that's probably a pretty important question where do i turn to get guidance about my goals yeah 
Yeah. I, uh, I grew up very much that drifting, that drifting ship and, uh, my parents are still sort of that drifting ship. They, they never really figured it out. And, uh, I found mine through, uh, my community at church and, mm. and, um, uh, the people that I, uh, train and fight with and stuff like that, that we have, uh, you know, just this, I don't want to sound too cheesy and say like an honorable or a warrior's mentality, mm. but that's, that's very much the plan that I got on that was different for most of my life. And I went, Oh, these guys have a pretty good life. I'm mm. going to follow the system mm. for a while and try to learn it and grow. So yeah, I think you're, you're absolutely right. You have to have an end destination in mind. Well, to just to carry on the analogy about a boat, like if, if you, uh, if your anchor chain breaks yeah. and you're drifting, then you are vulnerable. Yeah. Anybody who's been cut loose and lost their anchor knows how dangerous that can be, and um, we need to be careful that we don't do that in our own lives. Right. I'm guessing that's a lot of what the is the where the prisoners are is that they just really had no end goal and they're just sort of following wherever life took them. You know, their anchor chain broke. They had no one at the wheel. They had no end goal in mind. And so they, you know, bad decision, bad decision. Now I'm in prison. Well, I, there's probably some things that you could say that applies to most people who are in jail. But there's lots of people who don't fit that sort of expectation. You must have been this and you must have been that. So you get all sorts. Okay. So what is your goal as a psychologist in prison then? Are they requesting you or are they? Yes, I, I work most of the time in what they called administrative segregation, which used to be like the whole, as they called okay. it. Like, and so people would either be sentenced by inside court to a certain number of weeks in the, in the segregation block or people request to go there mm. because... Um, Life's too difficult in the general population. Yeah. And so these guys be locked up 23 hours a day. Wow. And my job was to sort of try and meet their psychological needs. Yeah. Sometimes the, the, the stress of, of life would exacerbate pre-existing mental health concerns. And, and I'd have to refer them to the psychi psychiatric hospital down the road. Yeah. Other times they just need, uh, we need to know where they're at. And sometimes they want to talk, and sometimes they're suicidal. And they, the one of the things I remember about the suicidal people is that more often than not, they'd all use this phrase, Jim, my life has no meaning anymore. Mm. And it's like, um, we don't, it's, it, it may be an over-generalization, um, but it's like we take meaning for granted to a greater or lesser extent. Yeah. I'm a glutton for it. If my life doesn't have enough <laughs> so meaning, I've got, I've got a crisis. Yeah. But if, if, we s if we find that our life has no meaning, literally, then we are uh, vulnerable f to suicide. And so, so many people have said that they've pointed out this terrible lack of meaning and, and emptiness. And so the conversations that I'd often have with those, we'd sort of go, hunting, as it were, for some tiny yeah. thing or experience or person or something they want to create that will help them get over the hump and, right. and live another day. Yeah. And so meaning, meaning is extremely important. Yeah. The, uh, the why, right? 
Mm-hmm. Why, why do you get up in the morning? Why do you go to work? Why, yeah. why are you trying anything? Yes. You have to have some kind of why inside there. My wife is a, a holistic nutritionist, and so she helps people with health goals and mm-hmm. weight loss goals and stuff. And that was the one thing that uh, I have done lots of coaching and, and lots of mentoring and stuff like that. And when she started, she thought it was like, oh, just give them a food plan and they'll, they'll off they'll go. And then I realized, she realized that wasn't working very well. And she's like, how do you get people to show up for a class? Like, three times a week well, you have to give it you have to know what their why is and, mm-hmm. and keep reminding them like you know even get them to say it as often as possible like why are you here why oh because i want to be healthy okay good so to yes. be healthy you got to and then you you can lay out the other stuff but you have to really remind the the the, the average people that it's important to have that why. You know, look at someone like um, Tony Robbins, and he tells you to write it down, make a mural, make a collage of all your why. So every morning you get up, you're staring at that and go, that's why I'm going to work, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's mm-hmm. a picture of your family or, you know, a bigger house or a nicer car, whatever it is. Absolutely. So within, uh, what, did the, what did the setting look like when you were going to talk to a prisoner? Was this like between... Was there a door between you? Did you go sit in her cell? Did you have an office? No, we were very much discouraged from going into somebody's cell because um, you, you can't be seen. So all sorts of problems can occur when none of the staff can see you. So they would come oh, to see. my yeah. office and in the segregation department, it's usually a um, semi-fortified office. Okay. It's all secure. It's got unbreakable specs around it so everybody can see and... Did you have a guard in with you? No. Well, that's not always. It's if if I thought it was necessary, absolutely. Yeah. But they're only a few feet away. Yeah. To the other side of the door. Okay. Yeah. So worst you're going to take is two or three shots, and <laughs> <laughs> and There's then the guard's going to be in there tasing them. No, I never had any problems. So that I, uh, I think it, it it was true to say that I was there to see if I could assist in some way. Yeah. And word gets around, and so. The threat level for me was far less yeah. as a psychologist. So they really believed the reason in your, they were in the office with you was so they didn't feel the way they felt or act the way they acted. Well, if, you know, if a nurse comes to the unit, then he or she will deliver health care, and that's usually in their best interest, and there's, unless there's something very wrong, you keep pretty safe. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I was sort of a bit like that. Yeah. You're there to help the person you've come to see rather than to punish them or do anything like that. Yeah. I heard someone say one time, I'm trying to remember who it is, that uh, so you're talking about um, the, the segregation, the, the complete confinement from everybody else. He goes, when you take some of the baddest people in the world, you put them in prison. You lock them away from general population. And when they're really, really bad, you cut off all human contact. And it just, it almost seems like I, I understand from a safety s- reason why that's important, but it almost seems... Uh, counterproductive to take away all their opportunities to learn and grow and change. Yeah, that's the nature of a dilemma. Yeah, We have to protect society, and so we can lock you up. Yeah. Oh, golly, what happens now? And so actually, if you're going to spend 25 years with us before you become eligible for parole, for parole, let's see if we can help you. Yeah, And that's the dilemma. Yeah. How much do you think the Canadian prison system really helped people inside? Like where you saw, I don't know what, I should have looked at the stats before I came, of, of uh, people, um, you know, doing their crimes over again. 
it's a, I would say that it's a bit like a bell curve where you've got uh, a main group of people sort of in the middle of your bell curve and then you've got outliers on both sides. And right. one outlier would be people who never, ever, ever come back. Right. And they haven't lost that sense of social responsibility. On the other end of the scale, you got on the other outliers, you've got people who are always yeah. multiple life sentences and things like that. And in the middle, you have people who serve one sentence and don't come back, first two or three sentences and then don't come back. <laughs> <laughs> so it's all sorts, really. Yeah, yeah. Cool, cool. So uh, let's go to next. So you did prisons for um, a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, would you say almost 12 years? I think it was 15 years spread over about, th- we've been married 38 years. So about, yeah, 15 years probably spread over about 30 years. Okay. And now I've, I've been in and out several times. Okay. I'm a repeat offender. <laughs> nice. um, and I know you've also done a lot of work with uh, First Nations Reserves as yes, well. Yes, yes. And so what is uh, kind of your role um, with the First Nations? Psychologist. Yeah. And um, so I, I have a contract with Health Canada and go to various reserves and work out of the health center there and people come and we sit and we talk and Try, yeah. and try and figure stuff out. I listened uh, or um, saw this study that was done, and, and this is, I said this a couple of times, but I want to get your point of view on it. What they did is they took uh, um, the black culture in the U.S. and uh, the Caucasian culture in the U.S., and they, had, they were all little kids, so like, say, from five to nine years old. And what they did was they had uh, five happy faces drawn. They were all identical except for the shade of their skin. And it went from very Caucasian to um, like very dark. And they would ask all the black kids, well, which one is good and which one is bad and which one is evil and which one could be a thief? And, you know, I thought the questions were a little bit unfair. (laughs) But what was very um, disconcerting was that the, the white kids as well as the black kids picked the black um, or the darker skinned mm-hmm. uh, one is the evil, the mean, the not so nice, all that. So even the p- the, the black culture believed that they themselves were not um, as good as the white culture. Mm-hmm. So there was something inside their culture. And I sort of feel um, the same way about First Nations is that there's there's a lot of great people there, but there's there's something missing deep down where they believe that they can be better than where they are or where they're at. Do you, does that make sense? I think it's um, a multifaceted situation. Yeah. And and so you could, on one extreme, you could say these people have been victimized by colonialization and, of course, they can't do this and they're trapped on a reserve and, and paint a generally helpless and hopeless picture. Right. That's on one end of that bell curve, if you like. Yeah. The other end of that bell curve is to say, okay, where are my boots now? Like, I'm living here, this is my situation, what am I going to do with my life? Yeah. And that's a more hopeful and helpful mindset. So did, do you see that being on the reserve, that they're, they're people are struggling to find their why? They're not seeing the, the strength that you might see in other cultures? The, I, some of the people that I admire the most, I think, are, are the grandmothers and grandfathers <laughs> who have gone through their own struggles, and now they're raising 
their children's children because their children are still struggling to put themselves on their own feet. Right. And so there's there's many unsung heroes in these reserves that most of us don't get to see and appreciate. Yeah. What we hear more of is people struggling with addictions and violence and all kind of social problems yeah. that are easy to list off. And, and you start to blame people, and that's not very helpful. So I think um, one of the things I will take away from my experience working with First Nations people since 1981 is the tremendous courage and fortitude uh, of some people and and the very much lostness, if that's a word. Yeah. <laughs> some people are very, very lost, <coughs> and they have just as many human needs as you and I do. Yeah. And those serious human needs go unmet, there's going to be implications. Do you ever think about, on a whole, like what's the, the route we should be taking to help the the First Nations get back to where they were or to get into a more healthy um, state than what they are right now? It's, it's probably a mistake for anybody, whether you're a First Nations from anywhere in the world or anybody, to say, okay, I'm going to be the way I was, even mm, yeah. beca because that's impossible. Yeah. And it's a more fruitful question to answer perhaps okay well what do i want who do i want to become yeah and how am i going to become that person yeah and my the my i think one of the themes in my work is to listen long enough to understand somebody and help them to articulate what they need and what's meaningful to them yeah so that they we together we can say okay this is the kind of direction you want to go in how are we going to get there yeah and and those sorts of things those sorts of things can come from a conversation yeah i agree the so the i don't know i i, I you know what i struggle with it we have first nations in our family that that struggle and 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 i've seen it in our own lives and i'm like there just is this commonality in the culture that, and of course it's not everybody, there's the bell curve, there's the very, very successful and the, the very, very tragic, and then something in between as well, that uh, you hope that there's, I want to say like a cure or uh, something that's going to help ev lift everybody up. Mm. And, and maybe it is, it's just those those conversations that where you, you listen and you help people set goals and you start new cultures and each individual family and then they do it for the next and next and we, we grow that way. Perhaps part of the solution would be to develop a small critical mass of people who want to live a life that they're satisfied with and not ashamed of. And once that critical mass of people are established and they're already there actually there's lots of people fit that bill it's just that the 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 difficulties that some people face are apparently so insurmountable that life is too difficult to encounter when you're sober so don't be sober because life's mm. too difficult yeah and that's it doesn't matter where you live or what race you're that's common across humanity. Yeah. There was uh, um, a study done where it was showing 
how long a certain behavior will last inside of a family. So if, you know, two people that have red hair have a baby, more likely to have red hair, but it's the same with behaviors, even mm -hmm. if they're not living in that area. And so the one I saw was with, with uh, mice and it went back six generations mm -hmm. where uh, the, the original ones, they took the first group of mice and every time they sprayed citronella to give them a little shock. And so whenever the mice would smell citronella, they would freak out. They were like, oh, where's the shock coming? Well, they took the next six generations out and they tested it with no shock. And if they smelt citronella, they, they panicked mm -hmm. a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so I think about that from a, a human perspective. And I don't know if it's true or not that, that it goes that far. But I think there's some stuff coming up now showing that it does. That, you know, if uh, uh, your family was in Germany in the, the, the war, um, you're more likely to be obese now because they were literally starved to death and now you eat because of that and mm -hmm. so you're you're going to be a bigger person um some sort of genetic preconditioning yeah exactly that there's there's just this going on and so then i go well that's true and we have these generations of of people that have not done so well in in the society that we have now how do we how do we get that out of them how do we teach them not to be that way anymore mm -hmm. there's all sorts of influences i think that affect us and the old nature versus n nurture yeah. debate uh, it can't, from my point of view I'm working with an individual and every single significant impact on their life exists and and so that's the history what where are you now like yeah. where are your boots now and how are you going to get to <coughs> how are you going to get to where you want to be and that's that's everybody's job Right. And um, it's easy to focus on negative history and become deflated and there's no hope because I have this happened to me and that happened to me and so I can't possibly succeed. That is hopeless. Yeah. And so part of the life struggle is, okay, what am I going to do Yeah. right now? Just get him that why again. This We were talking earlier about neuroplasticity. Yes. And how... I'm glad you said it, and I didn't have to. <laughs> <laughs> this, the new science is showing us that the brain has a phenomenal ability to heal itself. Yeah. And you might be stuck in some sort of habit where there are neuro pathways established, and, and that's why you do things on repeatedly, because that's where you've sort of conditioned your brain. And does that mean you can't change? No, it does not. You can change. You can in a sense, rewire your brain. Right. And that uh, there might be some sort of assistance from the medical world, but from the psychological world, it means hard work. Yeah. And it is possible. Awesome. That's good to hear. The uh, I was listening to someone else. I wish I was better at remembering names, but they were talking about the human race as a whole mm. is very religious. We're always looking for... Um, a system or a plan and once we get on it and we're comfortable with it, we keep doing that so whether you're an alcoholic or a christian or or whatever we just get on that plan so if we can get that thought process changed and and moved over to a different plan like okay i'm not going to have a beer when i get home from work today i'm not going to get you know blackout drunk on saturday and just start slowly implementing um you know these new behaviors new actions so the old ones get moved away the co-founder of Can Praxis is Steve Critchley, and he teaches people how to resolve their conflicts. 
through conflict resolution skills and he always talks about small small yeah like small steps right and every big conquest always begins with a smallest step which yeah. actually really means a decision yeah and so if you're going to change the way you live uh, diametrically if 180 degree change well you're probably not going to do that instantly i'm gonna like rather like an oil tanker in the gulf of st lawrence i'm gonna turn around but it's gonna take some room <laughs> exactly <laughs> and and that room equates to small small decisions yes yes um i'm glad you brought up cam praxis because i don't want to miss uh talking about that at all you're one of the co-founders of uh, cam praxis which is an organization that helps first responders and uh, veterans with ptsd um traumatic brain injury um, uh, so I did get to spend the weekend with you guys and see a bit of the process, but maybe you can talk about some of uh, Campraxis goals and some of your, maybe your methods. This, the Campraxis is really the brainchild of the other guy. Of Steve. Steve, Steve <laughs> He's an old soldier, has spent 28 years in uniform and noticed very clearly that if you come back from your service, whether you're away on tour or not, if you get some sort of operational stress injury, one of which is post-traumatic stress disorder. I sometimes think we should call it post-traumatic stress injury myself, but yeah. there we go. As uh, opposed to a disorder, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Life does get disordered, but there's no need to sort of go down that route. Always label it Label, that label, way. label. Yeah. But anyway, the thing that Steve noticed brilliantly, I think, was that couples who are injured in this way experience far more crisis and conflict than they did before the injury. Yeah. And so the injury exacerbates pre-existing problems. And so there's this veteran, man or woman, serving or retired, trying to deal with this uh, bewildering change. Right. I'm not the same person as I used to be, sort of yeah. thing. So with increased crisis and conflict, how are we gonna deal with that? So they often get medication and all that kind of stuff, but we, they come to Canpraxis and we run it here in Alberta or also in Ontario. And we teach them and give them some experiences with horses to help them deal with the conflict together. And so they're both satisfied, really like going from a me against you point of view to us against the problem. Right. Because I can sort of um, have a normal argument with you. So, and con contests impose solutions this is where it's going to be don't okay. argue contests impose solutions conversations create solutions and there's a world of difference so we mm. we we're sort of a training facility in a sense yeah we, we don't ask people to divulge their trauma that's for the counseling yeah. session and i've done lots of that but it doesn't happen here right we have some we have some tools to show you and some experiences to share with you so that you can leave with realistic hope. Yeah. This is certainly not come and hug my ponies and you'll <laughs> feel fine. <laughs> that, that's the very last thing it is. We use the horses because they are, they're several things. They live, they're social beings. They crave company. Yeah. Not too many of us would survive as hermits. So we're, we have something in common. Plus they live on a chain of command. Yeah. You can feed the horses hay now and you'll see who gets it first. She's the boss lady. Right. No question about that. Well, the people who come, the veterans and first responders, they're used to being on a chain of command too. Yeah. The other thing about the horses, uh, they're hunted. They're animals of prey. So they've got to be 
wide awake. Thank you very much. Hypervigilant even. And the people with this injury, they're hypervigilant too. So if we build on those three things and say that the horses are incredibly perceptive, yeah. they can, uh, because they depend on their ability to run away from a problem, they're animals of prey, they've got to decide whether the animal or the person approaching them is a friend or foe. And they can measure your heartbeat from some wonderful distance. And um, they know if you they can relax in your company or not. So some people say, this horse, Jim, it's behaving just like my husband. Mm. And then a few hours later, somebody says, this horse is behaving just like my wife. Yeah. And well, that's true. Because if I've got this sort of internal volcano of anxiety and depression and rage and frustration and confusion that is invisible yeah. to most people walking through the mall. No one can see it, but a horse can sense it. I, I'll, I'll tell people my experience mm. of being out here, and the one in particular, and, and you can maybe describe why and stuff, but uh, they took a, a horse whip and they put it in the middle of a very small pen. So mm -hmm. that pen is maybe 20 feet around. It's a big circle pen. And then they asked me to walk into the pen, and there's a, um, a halflinger is the horses you use here, which isn't a huge horse, but it's, it's way bigger than me, <laughs> way more powerful than me. And I'm a little bit not afraid of horses, but a really healthy respect for them. So I was told to walk up towards the whip, and the horse knows what the whip does, that that causes um, some strife, and so they get, he gets very excited, and the horse starts like galloping around the inside of this pen, and I'm in the middle of it. So there's this large horse running around me and I could feel the franticness of the horse and the um, the veteran that I was working with there he was guiding me telling me what to do to calm down and not put out that bad energy and so uh, um, through his guidance which he had been through this before and and I'm sure you use me in this situation for them to really understand or to see it that uh, I was able to just like know this horse wasn't going to hurt me, calm myself down, make sure the horse knew I wasn't going to hurt it. And then all of a sudden the horse, as soon as I like mentally agree that this was true and I started doing it, the horse just calmed right down mm. and literally walked up right beside me. And I could have petted, I could have anything. Mm -hmm. And I was only four feet away from the whip. Like I don't think my, my distance from the, the conflict um, really changed in that. One of the things we try to do is to help our participants develop an exquisite understanding of pressure and release right. while working with a horse so they can offer respectful pressure and release while relating to their spouses. Yes. And this exercise in the round pen, horse people know it as join up, and there's, a, there's kind of a story behind why we use it. Back probably 35 years ago, uh, my twin brother had been ill. I went back to England to see him. I visited him, then on the way back, I thought, oh, I'll give my, I want to find a present for my wife, Becky. And so I went to the bookshop, and I went to the horse section, and I saw a book called The Man Who Listens to Horses, and that piqued my interest, so I bought it. And for an old dyslexic, I, I read the thing, on the plane home to Vancouver, read the whole thing. Yeah. And it was about how the author, Monty Roberts, had grown up in a violent home. And dad had lots of horses, but he used chains and whips and broke the horse's spirit in order to gain complete submission. 
And this, as so many young, wonderful young men do, they said, there must be a better way. Mm-hmm. Anyway, his career led him to be working in the southwestern United States and c- had opportunities to observe large herds of wild horses. And he observed their behavior in a fairly analytical way. And he noticed something about how they were communicating. And one thing in particular is the thing that we mimic in the round pen is that, for example, if there's a young stallion goofing around, being a nuisance, teenage (laughs) boy, you know what I mean? Yeah. And the lead mare literally kicks him out of the herd. Get out. Yeah. And so he's banished. So uh, before he was banished, he was very confident. (laughs) Typical sort of behavior that you can imagine. And when he's out of the herd, he loses his social connections. Yeah. He loses his safety. He loses his friendships. Yeah. And that's a crisis. It's a crisis for the horse, and guess what? It's a crisis, crisis for, for us, people, for yeah. too. So he has to negotiate his return. Yeah. And Mama is standing there looking like she's angry. Yeah. And she's hostile. She's aggressive. And he, in order to get back, he's got to drop his aggression and his cool, I'm a big guy. Yeah. So he relaxes his body and goes a bit limp and hangs his head low and says, look, I don't want to be a threat to anybody anymore. I'm sorry, can I come home? But he can't come home until Mama says the same thing and she relaxes and lowers her head, for example, and sends a sort of message, okay, son, it's time you can come home. And he hurries home. (laughs) (laughs) It's a bit like turning on the lights in a dark room. (laughs) I'm safe now. Anyway, I read this book and... That was great. I had it all in my head. It was one of those moments or one of those books that was sort of seminal in one's reading experience. Anyway, Becky met me in Vancouver and we went home, went to bed. Three o'clock in the morning, the phone rings. Hello, Jim. This is Tomiko. And Tomiko had some of our horses in her horse barn down the road. She said, our horse barn's on fire. Could you come and help? Oh, wow. So jet lag, jump in. It's a Fraser Valley, so it's pouring with rain. (laughs) And... um, I got there and several fire trucks, all flashing lights and searchlights and burning buildings and all that sort of stuff. And so I found Tomiko and she said, well, we've got all the horses out of the yards that are next to the burning building, except for one we can't catch her. And I said, the most thoughtless thing I think I've ever said, I'll go and get her. (laughs) (laughs) So I got a halter and went into this horse yard and started strutting around, fresh out from England, saying, well, this is... I'm in the colonies, you have to do what I say. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I couldn't catch her. And if you're trying to catch a horse that doesn't want to get caught, all you're going to get is exercise. Yeah. And then I remembered, <laughs> I just read this book. Yeah. So I glanced around, no one was watching. Yeah. So I thought, I'll try this thing I've just been reading about. So instead of strutting around, I relaxed. I just let my shoulders drop and my head drop and just uh, relaxed, go limp as much as you can next to a burning building and fire <laughs> trucks. <laughs> and really, you're not supposed to sort of look at the horse because eye-to-eye contact with the horse is a sign of aggression. Okay. But anyway, out of the corner of my eye, I sort of cheated. Yeah. As soon as I relaxed, she stopped. The moment, the moment I relaxed, she stopped. Wow. And she turned her neck through 90 degrees and looked at me and then walked 
straight towards me. She put her front feet sort of next to inside my feet yeah. and bent her head a wee bit, and I put the halter on her head. Oh and it was yeah. like, for a young guy out from England, it was like time stopped. God yeah. showed up. It was something very powerful. powerful and serious, and something was more to this than just rescuing a horse for me. Anyway, so I had gained her trust, obviously, yeah. and so I led her into this burning building and out again to safety. Wow. And, and uh, the, what, what's so powerful to me, I think, is that it's one thing to save a horse, but it was a metaphor for something greater. Yeah. And it's got something to do with understanding each other. Yeah. If we can understand each other, we can go once again away from a me against you to us against the problem. Right. We can go to having contests that impose my solutions to having a conversation where we can both be satisfied. Yes. And um, people who previously haven't had a voice get a voice. Yeah. And so we mimic this thing that happens in the wild inside a round pen, inside a horse arena in Alberta and in Ontario. And the person who's standing in the middle, like you were describing, applies pressure. And the horse has got nowhere to go, so she goes around in circles. Yeah. And she does not like it. Yeah. It's stressful. It's, it's very stressful it's being in that pen. And bear in mind that when they're out in the field competing for hay, they're far w more um, aggressive to each other than the person who's in the round pen. Yeah. So this is real competitors. It's really safe. For them compared to what they get in the natural setting. Yeah. But anyway, they will very quickly send a signal like what we call a conciliatory gesture. Oops, I'm sorry, I didn't mean, please let release that pressure. They'll slow down, they'll turn the head, whatever it is. And at that moment, I always instruct the person in the middle of the ramp to drop the stick. Yeah. Because the horse has offered a conciliatory gesture. Yeah. And he dropped the stick, he relaxed, and then you see what the horse does. And what the horse does is a result of her assessment of the person in the middle of the ring. If this person is relaxed and safe and like the like the mare in the middle of the herd, I want to come home, the horse will come oftentimes will come right up to the person. Yeah. So let's let's be a team, let's join up together. I'm with you now. If the person's got this old internal volcano <laughs> full of rage and anger or whatever else it is in Anxiety. the human heart, yeah. She might say, mm, I'll come back halfway. Yeah. And so we, we sort of uh, we um, manage that situation to get the best therapeutic effect and develop a conversation of what kind of impact you're having on your spouse and vice versa. Yeah. I'm just thinking about that whole weekend and how that, that, that um, uh, exercise went and, and what we did over the whole weekend. And it was really revolving around conversations. So earlier you said it's, you know, finding out what's your goal and what you're going after and why you're doing this. I, I'm seeing a bit of a more of a connection now than even I did on the weekend where mm. it, that, that was your goal was to, um, create this place where you could have a conversation where you could get to that next level. And that sort of is, is that a, a, a good analogy? Yes. If you can, like, we talk about trust and respect. Yeah. And s injury, uh, relationships that are compromised by this injury, trust and respect seem to vanish. Hmm. And one of the reasons I have so much respect for the spouses is that they live 24 hours a day, often walking on eggshells, 
root emotion is fear. And so the, the person they married isn't quite the same anymore. Right. And so that's a huge personal loss. And, and the, the spouse's family often say, ditch this guy, he's no good. And they stick with him or stick with her. Yeah. And they're real heroes. The spouse's heroics cannot be underestimated. I, uh, th- I don't know, you can cut me off if I'm describing stuff that I shouldn't be, but basically when I was here that Steve took the, the guys on their first day and then the girls get, or sorry, the spouses get like a spa day or some time to get to know each other and a little bit relaxing before yes, they came. Th- there's more to it than that. Yet um, the curriculum is designed so that the spouses, we recognize that the spouses probably haven't had, had a day off sometimes for decades they're always looking after you know who yeah and there's more to it than that too though the the program will end in three days which will come very very quickly yeah this injury isolates people they lose their family members they lose their friends and so they are trying to manage their lives without the social network that they're used to and we talked earlier how important that social network is for everybody absolutely so the first day for the spouses is designed for to give them an opportunity to go and relax and more importantly perhaps is to develop begin to develop friendships with people so that in a week or a month they can they have a bad day because there will always be bad days they can pick up the phone and say oh it's me how are you doing can we chat for a bit and the, the thing about this injury is that if you're not talking seriously to someone it's likely going to kill you eventually. Yeah. So one part of the remedy is to be able to talk to people. Yeah. And we encourage them to have therapists and psychiatrists and all that sort of thing. But good, meaningful friendships go a long way too. 100%. And just so that you don't have to explain that your spouse was this and that because they've experienced more or less the same yeah. impacts of the injury. They come from the same, same tribe, same yeah. background. So regardless of how the injury occurred, the results are hauntingly similar wow. so to have someone you can pick up the phone with can can and has and will save lives yeah i um the it, the first speech that steve does in the or the first section of the, mm-hmm. the curriculum in the morning that steve does and he talks about and uh, well i got the evidence right in front of me so he said it was kind of like the uh, scope of a gun mm-hmm. that you have this range and on one side you have this no walkaways and on the very other side you have no power plays and then in the center you have no blame and so if you sort of follow those three rules in a conversation and and I was taking notes the whole way through because not only do I think this this is good for well it's obviously good you guys have the the proof the evidence that um, that this this program works very very well that I walked out of the first whatever forty five minutes hour that was and you guys kind of debriefed me outside and I went why are you guys teaching this in high school mm-hmm. like why are you teaching this to everybody because the the conflict resolution that i learned in that first 45 minutes i've taken home and is relieved so much pressure inside of our house when i have an understand i explained it to my wife i explained it to my kids i wasn't good at it whatever six months ago when i was here i don't think it was that long three four months ago when i was here um, and i'm getting better at it and so is everyone in my family but when you look at the the system as a whole it's not just for um, injured people or suffering people is for everybody. Like this is a good method of living a life. Uh, if we if we 
finished our teenage years with an ability to resolve our conflicts, the world would be a different place. <laughs> right. But let me explain. This idea of no walkaways means that you stay in the conversation long enough so that it's get a satisfactory result for both people. Right. Having said that, you might say, let's just put it on pause and come back in an hour when we're a bit calmer. But, yeah. but me, if we, you and I are having a conflict and I roll my eyes... That's like an emotional <laughs> walk away. I don't, I'm not listening to you anymore, mate. I'm done. I right? shouldn't laugh because I've done it. That's so why I'm laughing. <laughs> we, t- we teach no walkaways equals stay in the conversation. Yeah. So many conflicts are poorly resolved because people don't actually talk about it long enough. Right. So it's a bit like climbing a mountain. You've got to get to a peak of a conflict mountain where there's some sort of uh, meaningful, uh, cathartic moment where you say, I've actually said what I really, really mean to say. So keeping in the conversation, i.e. no walkaways, is important. No blame. How, how helpful is it for me to just keep blaming you and you to keep blaming me? It's a negative sort of looking back. It's not constructive. And no power plays, no one-sided imposed solutions. Listen, buddy, this, I've decided this is how, how it's going to be, and, and that's the end of it. Well, if you're trying to live as a married couple... That doesn't work either. So no. we're basically trying to f- teach people something that I've benefited from a lot too, to to be able to stay in the conversation so that both parties are satisfied. It's not going to be yippee, I'm so delighted, because that's a bit naive. But you know what? I can live with that. Can you live with? Yeah, I can live with that. Yeah. Okay, let's move forward. I uh, it, it's funny because uh, coming out here this morning, uh, me and my wife had a, a bit of a disagreement. So mm-hmm. I'm not going to share what it was about. But anyways. I had to. I had a nephew in town that I hadn't seen in a long time. I had to get out. I had to drive out here, and we were in the middle of a disagreement. I kept saying, "I, I, I can't stay and talk about this. Can I call you on the drive, and then, and then we can discuss it at that mm-hmm. time?" Because I know that that leaving somebody hanging is the the worst thing that you can do. Mm-hmm. And then throughout the conversation, so you know, I get my wife on Bluetooth. I'm on the highway, and we're having a discussion about the issue that we're having. And uh, you know, she's basically saying I'm not doing this to be mean and I'm like I know you're not it, it's that I 100% understand that that I'm trying to make her understand that I'm not blaming her for my frustration either I'm just frustrated and there's a bunch of reasons leading up to it but the the the, the no blaming and the no walkaways and the no power plays is um it just brought so much, and I've been doing it. My wife sort of understands. I'm probably not explaining it as good as, as what Steve does, um, and she would get it more if that was in a counseling session or whatever with us. But we both just started doing that and saying, this isn't what I'm trying to do. This isn't what I'm trying to achieve. And you, It went from like this hugely frustrating moment, and as soon as we had a little bit of time that we could talk and work through the, the, the problem, saying, okay, this is not what I'm doing. They're like, oh, everyone relax. Like, I'm not trying to tell you what to do, or I'm not trying to make you do this, or I'm not trying to punish you for this. Then uh, both of us relaxed, and I spent the next 40 minutes on the phone working on a solution mm-hmm. instead of fighting about why we're fighting. Very good. Um, and it was it's amazing to me, and it didn't even dawn on me that's what we're doing until I looked up on the wall. <laughs> I saw the three things, but I, I literally practice this at, at work and, mm-hmm. uh, and at home um, to, to come to resolutions. So we could probably say that most arguments aren't about what they're about. Right. There's a presenting problem. Yeah. But it's there because there's an underlying problem. Right. And if you get a good, honest trustful respectful conversation going and you can want to be you can say what you really think yeah then that's the beginning of resolution 
Yeah. We uh, we do some exercises that are where one person is blindfolded and the, and the, another veteran or spouse is on the other side of the horse and that person is not blindfolded. And, of course, if you put on a blindfold, you can't see. Your needs change right. instantly. And we ask the sighted person to ask the blindfolded person a very important question. Right. What do you Please. need? Right. And then the second instruction is, then you listen for the answer. Right. You might even ask questions to clarify. So eventually you get what the other person tells you what he or she needs. And that simple question, when it's asked at the right time, cuts through all the bullshit. 100%. And someone can say, okay, I'll tell you what I need. Yeah. I asked one, one uh, wife one day, what do you need? She said, I've got to go to the bathroom. <laughs> and, and, and we all laughed and off she went and, and then she came back and said, okay, what I really need in this relationship is this, that and the other thing. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you need implies that I'm going to listen to the answer. Yeah. So when I was out here, almost everybody that was injured was male or they were, everyone that was injured was male yeah. and then all their spouses were female. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there was very much this uh, male, female dynamic on both sides. And I'm sure it's not true for all the, the situations. Do you, I would imagine it's harder for a man, man to sit down and say, this is what I need. Is that, is that true? Or do you see there's a difference between men and women or are they just both horrible at doing it and have to be a learned yeah, I'm not sure, but I, I would say that generally speaking, there's a significant number of people who find it difficult to articulate their needs. Yeah, We we do a little thing with two-way radios uh, uh, where I ask someone to use insulating electrical tape to strap around the two-way radio so that the transmit button is stuck on. Yeah, And so that is a metaphor for somebody who will talk continuously. And we get somebody else to come up and we make a bit of a joke about it, but they're not allowed to even touch the transmit button, which equates to someone who never speaks their mind. Right. So you have this strange couple, one who won't shut up and <laughs> the other who won't say a peep. <laughs> yeah. and, and of course, everybody laughs. And um, it just re-emphasizes the need that there's got to be a two-way communication. Yeah, absolutely. It, it was amazing to me, now that I'm looking back on the disagreement or the argument, mm -hmm. conflict with my wife just from this morning on the stuff that I learned from here mm. uh, brought to that, that, you know, when we took the time to just let the other person talk and not like, okay, I, I voiced my frustration and then she said, she voiced her frustration. We both just stayed silent while the other person did it. And then by the end of it, I don't think we even had a resolution, but just us understanding yes. how the other person felt completely changed our moods. Like I could, I'm on a cell phone on a highway or on Bluetooth on the highway. People think I'm breaking the law. Um, while I'm driving, and I can I can feel it. I can hear it in mm, the voice just by us being able to communicate. This is what I really need. This is what my real frustration is. She didn't even tell me she was going to resolve the, the, the side that I was frustrated with. But just knowing that she heard me, all of a sudden I relaxed completely. My anger and frustration went out the yeah. window, and then we just became the, our normal husband and wife again. Yes. Conversations create solutions. It's yeah. so important. And... This injury 
destroys that ability to some extent, often a tragic extent, and people need to be retaught how to have a conversation. Do, do we know why the injury does that? Is there a biological, like, is there something that's physically injured? Is it a, a cultural, like, what, what causes that? This is very interesting because it, the people who say fought in the First World War were accused of having insufficient moral fiber and were shot. Yeah. Um, people in the Second World were thought to have uh, shell shock. And m my uncle, for example, went off to pick grapes in the vineyards of France to sort of recover and jolly good show for all that sort of stuff. Now, w with the benefit of functional MRI machines, we can look and see what's happening in the brain. Yeah. And a healthy brain, there are all sorts of different parts of the brain, as you know, and they sort of talk to each other through nerves and neuropathways and whatnot. An injured brain from this trauma or multiple traumas doesn't work the same. The parts don't talk to each other, especially the amygdala, which is the fight and flight bit at the back. Yeah. Amygdala, I think, is Greek for a walnut, is it? Hazelnut? Walnut? Anyway, uh, that takes over, and people sort of panic and jump under the table, and if they hear a helicopter or whatever it is, and the prefrontal cortex, uh, which is the sort of logical bit, gets shut down for survival purposes. So people behave in ways that they didn't used to behave. And so this comes back to neuroplasticity where we actually are able to work hard through controlling our thoughts and reconsidering what we're doing and assigning new meanings to situations where I can begin to think differently. Yeah. And uh, it's, uh, it's very frustrating because it's very difficult and you fail a lot. But it's a bit like learning to walk, perhaps. Now, I haven't got this injury, so it's a bit unfair for me to say that. But the baby who falls over a lot eventually gets up on his two feet and can walk and can run. And in a way, people with spinal injuries sometimes have to relearn to walk. Yeah. And people with a serious brain injury that is now visible through computerized technology, they need, with, with lots of support and understanding, and education helps a lot. They need to rewire their brains to a certain extent by repetitive, successful thinking. Yeah, the uh, I've been because of the legalization of marijuana, um, uh, the U.S. starting to do some studies on psychedelics and stuff like that. Have you done any reading or research or heard anything about the the benefits of psychedelics with uh, PTSD and TBI and? No, the only thing I can say about that is that a lot of people are replacing a long list of pharmaceuticals with a correct dose of cannabis, and they think it's very successful. They don't necessarily want to get high all the time. They just need to sort of mellow out a bit yeah. and, and, and not be sort of um, uh, dopey yeah. through too much pharmaceuticals. And so a lot of people are finding it uh, helpful. Yeah, there was a, a, um, a mycologist, Dr. Paul, Sam, maybe he's not a doctor. Uh, I'll call him Paul Stamets. I'm sorry if he's a doctor. <laughs> Anyways, he's uh, he's moving to Vancouver right now and doing a lot of study on uh, mushrooms and psychedelics and that. And being that 
we believe Trudeau is going to legalize it, the, the study in Canada, um, that uh, I think that's why he moved to Vancouver. Anyways, that's the conspiracy theory that we have right now, that uh, they're seeing with uh, actual brain injuries, um, they're seeing them physically rewiring the thought processes, the synapses, everything that goes off when they're on psychedelics. And so if you have a, a trained psychologist and you take a low dose of LSD or um, psilocybin, um, that it changes the thought process faster than if you just, you know, years and years of therapy or pharmaceuticals. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting that the MRIs are showing some of that, and I'm hoping to see a bit more studies because if we can speed this process up, as it were, um, to get people to, you know, change their culture the way they think, that yes. that should be helpful. I don't have experience in in the pharma, um, psychedelics and stuff. All I can say is that I think that when these participants come and work with the horses, I think it speeds up the therapeutic process by about five times. I I I could concur from what I saw, and um, I think I I tend to sort of move into the psychology and philosophical aspect of life, and I I credit people with with enormous amounts of sacrificial love. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's the highest form of love. And uh, the spouses in particular worked very, very hard for years on end to support the injured. And the injured person is, is it's a bit like being thrown into a cold ocean and you can't really swim. You think you did once before, so how do I do this? But it's so difficult. And so... That's a good analogy. They, they, they need support. They need education. Uh, oftentimes, it's re-education. No, oh, I knew this years ago, but I'm thanks for pointing it out. Let's go and practice, because <laughs> in a sense, there's nothing new under the sun. Yeah, they come with enormous amounts of wisdom themselves, and we help them see that. Yeah, it it, it was an eye-opening experience for me for sure. One to see, um, the real injury, mm. like the. You, I don't want to say you can physically seal it or see it or feel it, but you definitely, you know these people are amazing because of their, their training, their background, what their spouses are doing for them and how much they love them. And you can see the struggle in what they're going on. And then you can see um, resolution. Um, uh, I don't want to give out names or anything, but there was a, a man here from uh, ex-military uh, from back east you know, he was a drill sergeant type, a hundred percent, and his eyes lit up like every time he learned something new. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, you know, he's just saying, like, I, I feel like I got so much more out of this mm -hmm. in three days here than I did of ten years of therapy. Mm -hmm. And you know, his wife felt the same way that, uh, and she was fairly new to the relationship. So mm -hmm. I, ha I don't know that I had a backdoor access, but some of them had talked to me on the side mm -hmm. and and uh, told me what they were feeling, what they're going through, and I was just, I was blown away. Like, how does, you know essentially like what 20 hours in total 15 hours like it wasn't a long time mm. that you spent with them um, make such a big difference and it, it's an amazing program it is designed to be high impact one thing i'd say is that we give so much credit to people who are overcoming physical limitations i've got to learn to walk in and everybody's there clapping and rah, 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 first few yeah. steps it's amazing and it is an amazing achievement with this situation, it's an invisible injury. Right. And we've had a fair amount of press coverage over the years. And I remember one person, one veteran, telling the interviewer, I'd rather have come home from Afghanistan without a leg 
everybody would know I'm injured. Right. They can't see this injury. Right. And it's, so it's an added layer of difficulty. And But having said that, they work extremely hard. They're fighting for their lives. And that's not an understatement. Yeah. And they're fighting against anxiety and depression and panic attacks and all kinds of things. And um, so... I think if their hard work can be focused by successful communication skills, they stand a fighting chance. What, what I could describe is that had I not known what the program was and I had just met the, the four injured people that were here, I would have probably listed them as jerks or assholes or just very, very difficult people to deal with. And then as uh, first Steve explaining why they think and act the way they act and then seeing the the, the exercises we go through and change them, it, it was a very different um, viewpoint for me for sure where I'm like, oh, this is, they have zero control over this. He's not trying to be a jerk. He, you know, there there's an off switch broken or something happened where he just doesn't know how to communicate in the right way. So it, it was amazing to me. And then, I have, uh, I think I told you before we started the podcast, I have quite a few friends that are uh, either RCMP or uh, uh, Calgary Police Services. And we've talked about your guys' program at length. And there's uh, one officer that uh, um, works with um, um, abused children. So he investigates um, pedophiles and, and abuse and kind of stuff like that. And he, he used to be a pastor, became an RCMP. And, you know, of course, he's a very passionate guy. He's a very sympathetic guy. He's he's really good at what he does. And when mm -hmm. he moved into this part of the RCMP, they just thought he would be the perfect role for this because he just had this uh, different heart, I would say, mm -hmm. than, than most uh, people. So he's been doing it for about two years. And all of a sudden, he had a lot of... Um, physical injuries uh you know he would get melanoma on top of his head and you know he would go through these bouts of um like almost like flu-like symptoms really really bad symptoms of, of being cold or sick um um and not really know why like it, it feels like a cold but it's not really a cold and so that i was telling him about your guys's program and and that kind of stuff and i don't know if he's actually contacted you i hope he has but he started recognizing so I guess the whole point of that was how much of this stress that the the injury is going to bring on physical ailments on top of the the uh, the the injury. People tell me that that what's going on inside the brain affects the body. A hundred percent. And and so I think there's there's um, good research behind this. The um, to to get onto our program, which is free for the participants, they don't pay a cent. Mm. All they need to be is diagnosed with an operational stress injury and either, either an acting or retired member of the Canadian Armed Forces or a first responder. Yeah. So, and they come with their spouse or a family member or someone who they need to be able to communicate with. Yeah. The, uh, that's what I was amazed at. So, um, uh, Steve Critchy, uh, Critchley. Um, your your co-founder co-founder, um, he was telling me about some of the stuff you guys have to do to get him here, and I know uh, you guys go over and above to get uh, to get the injured people here and and on the healing path. Um, you know, flying them from all over Canada, getting them babysitters. Like there, mm. it blew my mind the mm. amount of logistics involved to make it happen. Uh, I was I was super super impressed with the program. 
it's um it's a small payback for what they've given their country and community. Hundred percent. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. Um, so we'll we'll put up all the uh, the links and stuff like that for Camp Praxis where they can donate. Um, if they know somebody that that is suffering that needs uh, um, um, some help in the right direction, we'll make sure those are all inside Good. of the uh, when I upload the uh, the podcast. Um, we talked about psychedelics. We talked about the prisons. We talked about First Nations. Was there anything else that uh, that you wanted to talk about? I would just emphasize the heroics required for recovery. Yes. And how much work goes on that's not noticed. Mm-hmm. And these people are acclaimed in the public as heroes, and we see them at a more private family kind of level, and the, the heroics, the struggle, the strength the ups and downs uh, uh, a testament to the human spirit. Yeah, the <laughs> Steve pointed this out, and I think it's in the first session that he has with, uh, with the, the injured people, was that uh, all their training makes them think in black and white, mm-hmm. that there's right and wrong, there's do and don't do, and that's it. And then when you come home, how do you not have that mentality? And Steve puts it, how do you how do you see in color where you know there can be some grays and some reds and some blues so that you're not just this harsh, um, black and white type person? Mm-hmm. Uh, that was eye-opening for me because I, uh, I I'm very much grew up just it has to be this way mm. and now I can sit back a little bit more and relax and like well let's see what happens when my when my son tries it that way and, ah, that's good appreciating a nuance can lead to a new life oh that's great that's <laughs> we should put that on a t-shirt <laughs> um so yeah I, I you know what the the weekend was absolutely eye-opening phenomenal it was great good thank you uh, I think, you know, we're sitting at just about an hour and a half here. This is a good time to end the podcast. Um, I'll make sure that I get all the links from you and put it up again. Thank you for what you guys do. We have friends and family that are police officers and uh, uh, paramedics that uh, we care about very much. And I would hate to see them be injured as uh, some of the people that I've witnessed in the mm-hmm. past. Um, you know what? Maybe just a quick question. Now we'll leave it for next time we talk. Okay. <laughs> All right, Jim. All right. Thank you so much. This is uh, Chad with I Want to Know up in Rocky Mountain House this time. Um, we'll have Jim back on again if he'll uh, allow us to drive back up here again and hang out. So if you uh, have any questions or you know somebody that would uh, benefit from uh, No Income Praxis, we'll put all the links up. So thank you and goodbye. Good night. And my mouse isn't working. How do we go off?